Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to go back to a place that I left off last time, which was actually in book one. And I'm going to look at some of, some of his key definitions uh, about the soul, about morality, about image-bearing. And I'm going to get us through book five. By the way, I'm not going to say much about book five. Book five is uh, you just drive through it. It's the whole point about book five. And uh, gets interesting in book six, because actually in book six, he starts telling you about what he found in Milan when he got there. Uh, and there's two major passages I want to just read line by line and interpret, and that'll be enough for today. Um, but we're on the theme of this book, which is uh, The Prodigal Trying to Become a Pilgrim. And in book five, he goes from prodigality to being a pilgrim, or at least the first steps of it. So, uh, last time I posed the question, who are the protagonists of this story? At least the human ones. And, uh, well, uh, one of the protagonists is, of course, uh, Augustine and his own soul. and which is beautifully summarized in book one, chapter one, in the theme of the restless heart. That the human soul is made by nature to uh, seek out God. Uh, we are naturally a pilgrim, just by nature, not just by redemption. and. Uh, we are made to, to, to search. In other words, we are, we are already in our hearts philosophical in some ways because we want to search out and know first truth. Um, and he summarizes that there in book one, chapter one. Uh, and I call that restlessness sub one. It's natural. It's, it's actually Augustine's version of natural law. And if you want Thomas's 
rendition of it, you go to question 94, Article 2, Prima Secundae, on the first precepts of natural law, and the ones that are most, are closest to our rational being. The first one he mentions is, uh, I come to know the truth about God. And even Aquinas poses it in an Augustinian fashion. It's a search. He doesn't say by natural law we know God. But we are already put up by our nature to pursue that question. And it's very Augustinian. But there is another kind of restlessness that we'll discuss in a moment. But let me mention the other protagonist. The other protagonist is God. So this is a prayer, and it's a kind of exchange. By midway through, it's very clear that Augustine's ability to even narrate his own quest is being caused by God. Through Scripture and through uh, the least of the apostles, namely St. Paul, by Ambrose, and as the story goes on, by many other friends that he meets in Milan. But here, here is the other protagonist, and this is 1.4.4. It's an amazing paragraph. What then is my God? What I asked except the Lord God, for who is the Lord but the Lord, and who is God save our God? The highest and best the most powerful, most all-powerful, most merciful, most just, most deeply hidden, and most nearly present, most beautiful, and most strong, constant yet incomprehensible, changeless yet changing all things. And here with the changing, you'll notice this list of participles that he uses to describe the divinity. It's almost overpowering. Changing all things, never new, never old, making all things new, bringing the proud to decay, and they know it not, always acting, always at rest, still gathering, yet never wanting, upholding, filling, protecting, creating, nourishing, and bringing to perfection, seeking although in need of nothing. So, the two protagonists are described as seekers. It's very interesting. Um, uh, Joseph Rotzinger likes to characterize this, a very good Augustinian, by the way, in terms of the Magi. Uh, and by the way, he gets this from Augustine. But you need to read Augustine's commentary on Matthew. But... There, is, there are two searches going on. And one search is what is naturally stimulated in the human soul, which is to know the truth about God, first truth. And so the Magi follow the star. By the way, they're not wizards. They're kind of quasi-scientists. And they are in search. It's an upward-moving logos in search of the truth, first truth. So they're not, they're not with, no, like they're I not. genuinely always thought they were uh, So according to the church fathers, they're not. And uh, according to Matthew, probably not. But so, so why are they called 
Uh, because that was an all-purpose term for uh, seekers and those who uh, studied the heavens. But they follow the star. And, of course, they come through Herod's territory. And there's two things that Herod's not going to like. The created Logos, which is upward-moving, trying to know the truth about God, or first truths, and the downward-moving Logos that I'll describe in a moment. Uh, yeah, Herod doesn't want that in his territory. Because Caesar has no control over any of these, either of this Logos. But they get to Bethlehem, and surprise, uh, God has come in search of them. The downward-moving Logos, uh, that is... Christological. And so in both cases, there's searching going on. But you see here in 1-4, God is a searcher. He's, he's coming to find us, like amazing grace. Uh, you love, but with no storm of passion. You are jealous, but with no anxious fear. You repent, but do not grieve. In your anger, calm. You change your works, but never change your plan. You take back what you find, yet have never lost, never in need, and yet glad of gain, never greedy, yet still demanding profit on your loans, to be paid in excess, so that you may be the debtor, and yet who has anything that's not yours? You pay back debts which you never owed, and cancel debts without losing anything. And in all of this, what I have said, my God, my life, my holy sweetness, what does any man succeed in saying when he attempts to speak of you? Yet, woe to those who do not speak of you at all, when those who speak most say nothing. So, this is kind of like a perfect collision. It's what makes the confessions just sparkle. Because you have, you have two searchers, and uh, who's going to win? Now, with regard to restlessness sub two, which is introduced right away in book one, and is first very famous uh, reflection on that has to do with the infants, right? The two infants. That's in 1.7. He's been criticized by every generation since he wrote this as being not adequately respectful of babies. But here we go. Um, and it's, it's evidence of another restlessness, one that does not cancel out the natural one, but it's going to frustrate it like all get out. He says, you know, we, we see the childish ways of the, of the children to get into bad temper when people who are responsible and who are once elders do not do exactly as one wants, to get angry even with one's own parents and with many others, too, who were wiser than oneself when they failed to give in to one's least whim, to strike out and do one's best to hurt 
when one's commands, which if they had been obeyed, would have done one harm, were not obeyed. It is clear, indeed, that infants are harmless because of physical weakness, not because of any innocence of mind. And I myself have seen and known a baby who was envious. Actually, I think the proper term here is jealous. It could not yet speak, but it turned pale and looked bitterly at another baby sharing its milk. And all of this is well known, and mothers and nurses say they have various ways and means of dealing satisfactorily with these things. But can one really describe innocence, conduct of one who, when there's a fountain of milk flowing, richly and abundantly, will not allow another child to have his share of it, even though this other child is in the greatest need, and indeed at this stage depends entirely on this nourishment to keep alive. So, um, have you ever seen the Fellini movie Amacord? There's Fellini's Amacord. There's a scene that's right out of here. It just lifts this story out, where the, the, the Italian extended family is at a villa for summer vacation, and around the corner comes like two-year-old with a rock heading for the crib. <laughs> yeah, and then, well, they stop it. And this is where he says, nursemaids know how to handle this because they're young. Uh, basically, he's, he's going to call this libido dominante. It's a, it's a sickness of the will which wants to dominate others and bring them under one's power like satellites. And it's, it's not just someone who is envious in the way we use the term. Because I can say, I wish I had, and just name what the other person has. And if I'm only envious, all I have to do is get one of the same things and we're okay. I'd like a Corvette, too. Okay. But jealousy, which for Augustine is the mark of Cain, jealousy uh, is not satisfied until the other is destroyed. So in Genesis, um, Abel and Cain uh, give their offerings to God. And Abel's is found acceptable, and Cain's is not. Augustine has a lot to say about Cain and Abel in, in other works, but uh, Cain wants to be recognized as his brother is, Abel. But they cannot both stand where, where they are. One has to win, and one has to lose, and Cain commits the murder. It was the last man standing. And this is what uh, Augustine is, is noticing with the children. And he goes on, uh, by the way, we all know how to handle this because they're small. Right? Uh, when they get a little bigger, you've got a problem. It's like the problem of bringing to your nephews and nieces gifts. You, should you get both of them the same thing or give them both different things? And you know what the answer is to that. It turns out the same way. <laughs>
regardless. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, the the jealousy comes up. I want what the other one has. And there is immediately bad temper and uh, dispute over these things. And then he moves along in one nine to talk about his schooling, which was rather brutal. Uh, it was all boys, of course, and it was the beginning of the trivium. Uh, they're learning words, and they're learning endings. And it's pounded into them by recitation, actually someone standing and reciting. And when there's an error with an ending, uh, they're beaten. Everyone gets beaten once a day. It's, it's that kind of regime. And they're not only beaten, but they are they're trained. They're being educated to have contempt for those who go to the tablet and try to write something and make a mistake. And what's going on with that? What kind of pedagogy is it? And Augustine basically says it's the typical human culture, which in half of its mind knows that something is wrong, <laughs> beginning with these infants. Something is wrong. And the best way to deal with it is to manage it. Managerial. Roman culture is essentially managerial for Augustine. That is, you funnel all of the bad movements of the soul to something that's at least useful, like knowing the grammar and being able to stand up on your feet eventually and speak and recite. Uh, that's useful because the entire imperial bureaucracy is going to depend upon actually thousands of people being able to do this. Right. You always had a job as a grammarian in the ancient Roman world because every town of any size has prep schools that are training people to know how to stand up in front of, a, of an audience and not goof up the endings, and also to be able to be rhetorical, that is to speak in praise of the common good or the city or the army or the emperor or the mayor or whoever. Right? They channel that competition, manage it to the best end that they can. In other words, the city, Augustine calls it Babylon, and I'll refer to that in a moment, it, it's not totally corrupt. I mean, people have figured out over time how to take the darkest aspects of the human heart, and by the power of society and authority and the rod, channel it in the right direction. Uh, but we put out in front things to be pursued that are wicked. And we know how to manage the pursuit of wicked things with, that redound somewhat to the common good. Yeah. In other words, we can't fix it. So we have to manage it. Augustine has a great story, not in the Confessions, but in the City of God of why uh, Jupiter used to be called pecunia, money. 
is because, and why Jupiter becomes the most powerful god, and really the god of the commonweal, that given a kind of quasi-infinity infinity of human desires, and keep on having permutations to them, it, it would, that condition, that state of nature, would lead to the complete dissolution of society. Uh, the number of disputes and the permutations of disputes. And so Zeus begins his government by, with money. And why pecunia? Because all desires can be reduced to one. How much? How much? Ten verses five. And it's a way not to do away with uh, greed. It's a way to manage it. That's pretty much Augustine's position. And this is why he says he refers to his... uh... By the way, Monica already seems to know that there's something wrong with this. Like in Book 1, Chapter 11, this is at the bottom of the page of the Rex Warner edition. For she earnestly endeavored, my God, that you, rather than he, that is Patricia, should be my father, and in this you aided her and helped her to overcome her husband, to whom, though she was the better of the two, she was still obedient because this is your command, and in this she was obedient to you. So the reign in Augustine's household of Patricius was rather problematical. And we, we read, uh, yeah, turn to 2-3. bottom of the page. At that time, then, people on all sides praised my father for spending more money than his means really allowed so that his son could be equipped with what was necessary for a long journey and be able to continue his studies. Many citizens, much richer than my father, did no such thing for their children. And yet this father of mine was not at all interested in how I was growing up in relation to you or how chaste I was. The only idea was that I should become cultured, though this culture really meant a lack of cultivation from you, God, the one true and good landlord and farmer of this field of yours, my heart. But in the 16th year of my age, when because of our straitened circumstances, I had a period of leisure, living at home with my parents, not doing any schoolwork at all, the brambles of lust grew up right over my head, and there was no hand to tear them by the roots. In fact, when my father saw me at the baths and noticed that I was growing toward manhood and showing signs of burgeoning of youth, and told my mother of it with great pleasure, as though he were already confident of having grandchildren. But his pleasure proceeded from that kind of drunkenness in which the world forgets you, its creator, and falls in love with your creature instead of with you. So drugged it is with the invisible wine of perverse self-will, bent on the lowest object. But my mother's breast 
you had already for your holy dwelling place. My father was still a catechumen, had been a catechumen only for a short time. My mother, therefore, was seized with a holy fear and trembling. Even though I was not yet baptized, she was alarmed for me, fearing those crooked ways which are trodden by those who turn their backs to you and not their face. You know, again, people say, isn't he being rather severe on his family? Because if you look on the other page, page 29 in the War Edition, he then goes after his mother. He says, as to the mother of my flesh, who had herself already fled out of the center of Babylon, but still lingered in its outskirts. She had certainly advised me to be chaste, but she did not give the attention she might have given when she heard about me from her husband. So what were Augustine's parents like? Like any parents in the suburbs here. They want, they want their kid to be successful, and they want the bumper sticker and said that my child, Augustine, is an honor student. And they want him to pursue the career path, which is the best career path in, in, in the imperial Rome, which is to learn grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and go up the cursus honorum of the municipal leaders. That's what they want. And if you have to break a few eggs going on, well, what the heck? This is what you have to do. It's human culture. You could write the same thing today. Augustine could write the same thing. You want the best for your child, which means you want them not in the outskirts of Babylon. You want them right in the center of it. And you want them to be successful. And you want them to follow the models of what that success are. And the main model is uh, the school. Later on in European culture, spend the real ahead 300 years, all of that system of grammarians is gone. Almost all of it is gone. Thousands upon thousands of grammarians that had jobs when Augustine is still alive, they were the feeders into the center of Babylon, were the grammarians. Uh, they're gone. I mean, there's a few hanging around. Uh, a very learned man monastery might have one. Everyone has forgotten all of the endings. They're still speaking Latin, but, but they don't know the endings, according to the grammarians anymore. And by the way, that's how the verbose children of Latin began. That's how we ended up getting five other languages out of it. They forgot the endings. But in Gusson's time, they haven't forgotten the endings. And there's a clear career path. And Augustine will get almost all the way there. So he's following the models. By the way, when you, when you talk about a paradigm, and for Augustine's mind, what's the first paradigm that comes to mind? It's the endings. It's the language. And you have to learn by imitation, emulation, uh, how to reproduce that. And to reproduce that language the way it ought to be spoken. 
to reproduce Latin, not Punic, in Augustine's case, uh, is the beginning. And we saw how it's reproduced by brutality and competition, which is channeling bad aspects of that to something good. And then in book three, we learn something about what that emulation is. And then I can get to his understanding of the triplex sin. Because in book three, of course, uh, excuse me, in book two, uh, he goes into the garden. He and some of his fellow teenagers uh, went into a neighbor's property, and they were wealthy enough to have gardens. And they stole the pears, right? And with no desire to eat them, uh, and in fact, they threw them away as soon as they had stolen them. Uh, there's, there's more than a hint of the story of the prodigal son in that story, by the way. The, uh, and Augustine said, what made us do this? Well, what led them to that is exactly what they're learning in school, which is uh, if you're to be an adult and you are to be a man, uh, you must compete and make all those around you mere satellites of yourself. This is what he means by libido dominant. The ability... It's like teenagers shooting out with BB guns, shooting out people's uh, car windows at night. What's the thrill? It, it domination, and it's not just like harming your neighbor's property. It's getting your buddies to submit to you. That's what it's about. And. Uh, so he learned well. That's why he tells this story. The, that story of the pear tree has to be connected to his story about schooling and the story about his household. Uh, so we get to the triplex in, which is uh, already up and running in, in two. So 2.6 is his first meditation on the triplex in. He'll have much more to say about it later in book 10 and in many other things things he writes. He gets it from the first letter of John. Um, And this this is his set of correlations, which stays pretty consistent through his entire career as a theologian. Um, We begin with pride. It is associated with the past. By the way, this, this should not be past, present, and future. It should be uh, the present of things past is past. Because what's past is no longer, doesn't exist. But there is a present of things past, memory. So pride, pride is the uh, forgetting you're not God. Or any indication that you are not the center of the universe. 
Lust is a present of things present, present of things past, present of things present, in which one seizes upon a person or a thing, you go out to it in order to draw it into your orbit and to dominate it. That's lust. It, it's, it's not just connected with sin, it's connected with power. To subordinate something and bring them into the orbit of your desire and power. Then there's a present of things future, which is already anticipating the next motion of prideful lust. It, Augustine describes it as kind of a circle. So you can think of the best example I know is the opening of Mozart's opera Don Giovanni. Um, it begins with Don Giovanni, who's already seduced 400 women in Spain alone. Forget about Italy. And he's crawling out of the bedroom window of a princess who is just seduced. And you hear rumbling back there because the father figured out that Don Giovanni just uh, seduced his daughter. And he's on the run. Don Giovanni's on the run. And the very next scene is his aide-de-camp, Lepato. His name is Lepato. Unscrolls a long, like a thing of toilet paper, that has the name of hundreds and hundreds of women that he has seduced. Now, the question is, does Don Giovanni love women? In a manner of speaking, Don Giovanni loves women. Right. But it's this. It, it is to seduce, bring them under your lust, domination. Right? Ten minutes, half hour, it doesn't matter. Right? And no sooner does this happen than... Curiositas, already anticipating uh, uh, the next daughter of a Spanish nobleman. Now, we're, we're using a sexual example here, but it, 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 it could happen on any other thing. Augustine's, Augustine's main concern is in interpreting one John and now applying it to he and his buddies at a rather early age, they're a high school type, right? is that, yeah, we see this motion of the soul. That is R2. And it is mostly out of control morally, although human culture understands how to put some boundaries around it. So actually, Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni, the end of the opera, they figured out how to cabin Don Giovanni. This is really what he means by restlessness sub two. Is, is this pattern? And it's, it, it corrupts, or let me say, distorts these three aspects of the soul. So a past, present, and future, or present of past, present of present, present of future. Uh, the uh, memory, it's in a way of not understanding your creatureliness as though you had been there forever. 
And, and by the way, the power of memory actually is would incline someone to form such a belief. Because remember, memory is not remembering. Memory is, self, is a kind of self-presence where you never forget yourself. So people can, in amnesia, forget their wife's name. They can forget where they parked their car. But they don't forget themselves. That's memoria. And it's quasi-divine. Seems quasi-divine. That's why in Book 10, he has to do a, a study of his memory to see whether he can get to the bottom of it. But Atencio is uh, also called Priam's present uh, to being present and accounted for, standing in front of, and expectation that is always intuiting the slide of the present of things present to the present of things future. And for Augustine, the following one, John, uh, is that the cure is uh, the theological virtues. Right? So in pride, you forget you're not God. And so the cure for which is faith. And by the way, he means by faith here, not just believing that God exists, or, uh, but believing unto God is, is his understanding. So it's already connected to charity. So faith restores with the proper humility what the human soul is because of its relation to the divine. Charity, of course, uh, which is the thing that melds everything together into a consistency. And hope is the uh, moderator of curiositas. He sticks with us all the way through De Trinitate, all the way into City of God, commentaries on different books of the Bible. So what we see kind of beginning to be fleshed out there at the beginning of the Confessions uh, in 2.6 uh, is pretty standard from him uh, here on out. And it shows you how it's also connected to his fascination with the problem of time. Okay. So, uh, okay, l let me read a couple passages now. Because we're getting... How about, turn to book three. This is the book in which, at the beginning, he, he reads Cicero's Hortentius. And this is kind of slipping away. It goes to show you that R1 is still there. The natural desire uh, to, to know truth. Uh, it doesn't take him very far, unfortunately. But it, it, it's in that, it's in that uh, book of the Confessions. And I'm going to go to 3.8, and I'm going to read a paragraph and try to make sense of it. He's also talking about the triplexen there, and I'm going to the last paragraph in our volume. And these things are done 
when you are forsaken, O fountain of life, who are the only and the true creator and ruler of the universe. It's really interesting there because the divine is not just creator, but rector. Uh, It's a God who actually governs. And they proceed from the private and arrogant self-will, which falsely attributes unity to a part and loves it. This is Don Giovanni. What does Don Giovanni love? Not women. He loves himself, loving them. He loves himself, loving them. So what could even be a social unity, man and woman? It's not. In the soul. In the soul, it's a domination. Unity to a part, that is, uh, everything else is to be satellites of me. I am the one that is whole and complete. So then, the way back to you. And here comes the pilgrim thing. Ready tour in te. Uh, can mean to return or go back or respond, ready to to respond. And it actually also contains the notion of confession because to pay back, to confess. Ready toward in te is through humility and devoutness. Now, uh, the ready to us, he sometimes calls it the ready to us verum, the true return. And it's associated with Augustine also with the term conversion. Conversus as a noun is one who is changed. As an adjective, someone who's turned back or recurved. That is, the motion of the will has been recurved, straightened out, what Roman culture will not do. Uh, as a verb, converso means to ponder, ponder over in one's mind. And it can also mean to discuss. I like the term to discuss because that's the confessions. Remember, the confessions is a, is a conversation between God and Augustine. Continue here. You cleanse us from our evil habits. He uses the term custom, which can be both habits of the soul and habits of the city. And look mercifully on the sins of those who confess them to you. You hear the groaning of the prisoners, and you set us free from those fetters we have made for ourselves. Well, listen, this this is an interesting one, because the term he uses here, um, solvere, to unbind, like to dissolve something. Solvere, to unbind, and, uh, well, or to rebind, and this comes right out of the word religion, of course. It comes out of religion. So for Augustine, 
being a good Roman etymologist. What is religion? R-E, which means something you're going to do over and over again, or at least do it again. Ligare, to bind. Those are the fetters in the Latin. From ligaments. Okay. So we're not talking about chains out here. So to rebind and rebind over and over again, that's what Etruscans or Romans would have meant in Latin by religion. Do it over and over again. Uh, but if you've done the wrong thing over and over again, you need a solvent. You see? I mean, the, the, the problem of the triple X sin is it, it needs a solvent. Because you'll just do it over and over again. The other meaning, right, legere, to read over and over again, also comes from Etruscans, because Etruscans were very finicky about their religious rights. Uh, Catholicism inherits this. Like for Etruscans, if an Etruscan priest, his eyes must be on the book, just like our priest during the Mass. And if he makes a mistake, he has to start again. But to read over and over and over again. Now, Augustine's already meaning by, right, legere. By, by the time we get to book three, he's talking about reading the Bible, which is infusing almost every sentence that he's writing over and over again. Okay. But there's also, uh, yeah. <clears throat> This is the cool one. Re-eligerate, to refine. Or to be refound. Re-eligerate. Um, it's the opposite of the negligentes. Those who are negligent, right, uh, need to understand how to be corrected. So they can choose again properly. So in this beautiful little passage that kind of completes this meditation on the triplex sin, at least in this part of the confessions, he has us uh, considering the soul, falsely attributing unity to a part and loving it, and that needs to be corrected. And he, does, he uses the term custom, so it includes both the habits of the soul and the habits of the city. And you look upon the groaning of the prisoners and you free us from those ligaments. And which ligaments, what's wrong with them? That we have made for ourselves. This is not, this, this is not our one. This is our two. So long as we do not raise against you the standards of, uh, of an unreal liberty and in desire for more, risk the loss of everything by setting our love more upon our private good than upon you, the good of all. We need a solvent. And we need to reread. And we need to be rebound. It, it's a perfect provisional ending to uh, 
his discussion of his childhood in Babylon. And he, when he says his mother was on the outskirts or was in, in, in the suburbs, because she had some corrections to undergo as well. Because as we learn in book six, when Monica gets to Milan, uh, the first thing she does, she starts adopting uh, old North African customs with regard to feeding the dead. And Ambrose tries to stop her and says, no, no, you can't be bound that way. That was the tie that binds for families, feeding the dead. You are a most unfortunate person if you don't have your, your son feeding you, right? Libation tubes and all that. And Monica was trying to pull off something close to that with martyrs. And Ambrose stopped her and said, no, it, it's too close for comfort. Don't do it. And by book nine, she has given up on this entirely. And she is at peace, dying in Italy, and not going home to rest with the ancestors. And that's when she finally leads the suburbs of Babylon. Anyway, this is Augustine 101. I'm going to keep going. And I'm going to get us through book five into six and seven. Uh, because he really does become a pilgrim. On the slightest thread, he becomes a pilgrim because he gives up on the Manichaeans. He, he is bothered by the loss of a friend. He's at wit's end, and he leaves North Africa. Uh, albeit to get an impressive job writing praise of the emperor in Milan. Albeit for that reason. But he was led in the right way because he is there only for a few weeks. And who does he meet? Well, he meets young men who are also as smart as he is, and maybe philosophically better trained even. But they all said, we go to this great parish, and you've got to meet Ambrose. And that's how book five ends. Book six begins with him telling us about Ambrose and about the slow correction. But it all has to do with learning scripture. In book six, he's being taught scripture by Ambrose and by others. And so I'll get us into that next time. Okay? I mean, we're done, right? Good. I had a question about envy and jealousy. So, um, you know, Romance of the Rose, that late medieval poem about Courtney Love? No, I don't. Tell me about it. Oh, it's lovely. It's great. Um, everyone should know it. Funny history, but there's a, there's a definition of jealousy and envy in there, which um, yours seems to be starting at a lower level of what sort of progress that whole thing could be. And calling that lower level sin makes me very concerned to see if I'm sitting more than I think, right? Um, but it starts off defining envy as being happy at someone else's sorrow and then sorrowful at someone else's happiness, right? So that can expand that one particular case of that can be about possessions or properties in a very general broad sense, right? Um, if you have a property which delights you, then you'll be sad that someone else is being delighted by that, right? So one way to alleviate that if you're envious would be to take the particular thing which is making them happy, right? Um, 
but it wouldn't be just getting necessarily something else at the same time because they would still have that thing. And if the cause of your sorrow is their happiness, then even if you have the same thing, you will be dissatisfied. Now, you said jealousy, I think, was going to the part of the point of destruction of the other person, right? Um, under this definition, Ruins the Rose, it seems that's just a more extreme version of envy because you're trying to be happy at someone else's sorrow. Yeah. The most effective way of making someone sorrow is destroying them, really, or to make the cause of your pain cease to exist. Um, so jealousy instead of that work, because that's already kind of, what you define as jealousy is already taken care of in their definition of envy, right? Um, jealousy instead of the work is, I think the best way to define it is asserting a right you don't have. So if you're very jealous of your lover, you know, rational agree, right? Um, you believe you have a right to sort of have, you know, detective or total surveillance of that individual beyond your rights, right. invade their privacy, for example, right? And that that's distinct from envy because um, it's not just about properties of people, whether it be literal physical property or a property as internal, you know, um, quality of someone, right? But it's about a relationship you have to them. So that seems to be, you know, more vicious and above there. But you were seeming to define envy as merely desiring something of the same kind as what they have. And that seems to be totally natural when I see someone who was to be great. Yeah, that's, that's, that that's lesser. That's a lesser. Because that can be satisfied by just giving something of the same kind. But is that a vice necessarily, though? When, I, when my desire for something is aroused by someone else having it. Right. So the, both envy and jealousy, if we trace them etymologically, go back to a Greek word for zeal. That is, somehow the soul is, hmm, it's disturbed, it's roused up. It becomes zealous for protecting itself in one way or another. It's self-concerned. Okay. But Augustine is using it in the sense of Cain. He, he's using it in a scriptural sense, which is the to protect oneself and one's domination, will to dominate, you have to eliminate your competitor. So he means it in the scriptural sense of the time. So, which is one of the deadly sins, of course. The elimination was certainly right. My wonder, though, is, and if I recall the scripture correctly, I think Cain might just want his own greatness alongside his brothers at first. Then he wants to kill him, of course. But if you just want to become a great hunter because your brother's a great um, you know, farmer or whatever, um, that you're, you're, you see someone else's greatness, is there already a vice in your being self-protective? That is, you don't just desire the thing for itself, the goodness oh. of it, but because someone else has it, you think, oh my gosh, I better start getting onto this so I can not lose out or something. Is of course. Of course, we don't know how whether Cain thought this through as a moral philosopher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, but I mean, you know, this, this is a serious, you know, right. serious thing. I mean, um, it's not just the goodness of the thing, right? It's you're being aroused to the desire for that thing precisely because someone else has it, but it's not necessarily wanting to deprive them of it. You'd be perfectly fine with that. You keep your special office, your benefit, and you keep your special you know, car or whatever else, right? But now because you have it, I better start getting on to it so I don't lose out. That seems to be, I guess. Yeah. That sounds less problematic. Less problematic, but maybe still, what do you think in this? From the, from the, well, it, it wouldn't be following the exhortations of St. Paul, which is to actually delight in 
the good that another has. Yeah, it, it's competitive in, in some way or another. It, it, it's different. But of course, the uh, envy or jealousy, whichever, the death dealing, is what was always attributed to Satan. Right? Yeah, that's even more extreme. But it is not letting yeah. someone else's good. That's yeah. I'm, I'm sadly confused on the question, but I, I, I thought the basic idea was I, I don't mean to take us to the story of Cain from Augustine, but. I thought the idea was something like, if I'm jealous of something someone has, uh, like let's say they're uh, they're better looking than me, uh, my jealousy will not be content until I kill them. Is well, a I hate them because they have something that I don't, right. and then b once they're dead, I, I can actually feel less jealous because well they're dead. Like he, he can no longer be more attractive yeah. than me because he's just dead. This is this is why Augustine stresses the term superstar as the origin of superstition at least the Latin etymological origin, because what does it mean to be superstitious in the deepest, most important, and actually interesting way, is you're the last man standing. Superstare. So the, yeah, so that the, uh, the, super, the superstitious will buy into whatever religion or power or arrangement that's necessary so that I'm the last one standing, or at least my family is, my son is, to be the last one standing. And uh, he has some really good etymology. And uh, he just said stop, so I'm, I'm stopping. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.